Good morning. Good to see you all. Glad you turned up and got here on time. I don't know if you've enjoyed the extra hour in bed, but I used mine up. I was here early. <laughs> right. We're going to continue in the series that we started. But before I do that, I just want to make a little a kind of advertisement for the healing place, which has been, we haven't had it for a while, but it's returning. <laughs> now, if any of you have been to the healing place, you'll know that uh, it's a time where you can come doesn't matter where you're from, what you do, whether you come to church or not, but there's an opportunity for you to receive prayer for healing. Now, it starts again on the Wednesday, the 4th of November. Opening time is 11 till 1. Will there be an evening session? Will there be an evening session? No. So it's just today. So please avail yourself of this opportunity. There are many people in here who have come along to the healing place and God has touched them and healed them and lifted them. And I would greatly encourage you to come. And it's highly confidential in one sense, but it's a real opportunity for God to just minister to you. I've seen some wonderful things happen in the healing places. People have come for healing and God has touched them in other areas of their lives as well. So this is a real opportunity. So please, I think it's going to work. Is it the same principle, the first and the third? It's just the first week. So it's a slimmed down version. So I would commend that to you. And now we're going to see if we can get into the message. Now, we've been on this incredible, as it were, journey through the Bible. Last week, Richard did a superb job. And he left us with this in this situation, we, we went to, you know, we went from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, which is 2,000 years. And at the end of this, we, we have a bit of a catastrophe. The catastrophe is that God, having made the world and put man in it and said, look, don't touch that tree, don't eat from that tree, they actually disobey God. We have, duh, 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 they're thrown out the garden. But of course, Richard reminds us that never, God never gives up on us and he always has a plan. So in this second episode of the big story, I've got some work to do this morning. Because we're going to go from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Deuteronomy. And I know I'm going to need help. (laughs) So we're going to look at three key things here. The fact that in these books, these five books, we see that we're chosen by God. We're We're going to see the great covenant covenant promises that God has given us and the call to worship, serve, love, and obey him. The fact is that God chooses someone. He chooses a man. Now we've got this big mess. How is God going to sort it out? Well, he chooses Abraham. So let's just read uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now, this is the beginning from, the the, from a theological point of view, the theologians called this from chapters 12 through to 50 the patriarchal age. And we've got five key characters here Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I'm missing someone. Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, and Joseph. And what we're going to see is how God deals with them. But first, let's just come into Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to start with the fact that God now decides to come to a man, and that man is Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land which I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And I and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him, and, he, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all his possessions that they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah, Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards the Negev. Now, by the way, just to another advertisement, we will be picking this up story up in the big story. And if you are in a, a life group, I think on either a Tuesday or Wednesday, you'll be able to dig into this. This morning, I will not be able to cover all the material in the depth that it should be covered in. However, when you get into your small groups, when you get into your life groups, I hope that you will be able to discuss these things. And more importantly, this book, the idea of this whole series is that you get into it. It's not enough for us to know it. <laughs> there are many of you who are Christians who do not read this book. And you should. You know why? Because it's the main way that God speaks to you. If I were to do a poll, secret poll, I would suspect that maybe hmm, a large percentage of you, as much as you go to church and you pray, you don't get time to read this book. But the whole purpose of the series is to create a passion in you to get into this book, to find out what God has to say and begin to see that, that God has a plan in using this book and how he weaves that plan into history to make his name known. So what we hope in these eight weeks is that you will have a, get a passion for his word. That you will start to read this book yourself. You will begin to dig into it. You will study it. To show yourself approved. That's the purpose of the activity. It's not just to uh, show off how much knowledge we have in the Bible. You know, Rick, Chris, Richard, and the third. No, it's so that you have a passion to read it. We'll be using the big story. I think you can get it from the bookstore for £2.50. Is that right? Reduced by 50%. Bargain. Which goes along with the series. Now then, back to our text. This is the beginning of what we call the patriarchal age. Now, God here... He makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Now, what do you mean unconditional? What it means here is that God takes the initiative to fulfill the covenant. God takes the responsibility to make his name known through Abraham. Through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And here's the point. It's not dependent on his performance it's dependent on God's goodness. It's not dependent on how, and if you read about Abraham, you'll find out that he wasn't, as much as he's the, he's the father of a nation and he's the man of faith, read the story. You'll find that he messed up quite a fair bit. Give you one instance. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And it, he's, you know, about 75 years. Nothing happens. And then his wife says to him, uh-uh, here's Hagar. 
Maybe the Lord is not called, going to give me kids. Go into her and have children through her. Now, Abraham, if he was a man of faith, you'd have said, no, my wife, this is not the right thing to do. But he said, yeah, come, baby. <laughs> and now we have problems because we got, you know, Ishmael came and we got whole issues there. You see, he didn't believe God. He, oh, you know what happened. So he messed up. But it doesn't matter because it wasn't dependent on him. As you know, Abraham has a son of promise, uh, Isaac. And you can read that in Genesis 21, uh, 35. But you see, the wonderful thing is this, that God overcomes our biggest failures. Because you see, when God makes an unconditional promise and covenant with Abraham, it's not dependent on him. And even though he messes up, God still comes through for him. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons. Because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Now, if you read the story, Jacob and, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, they're a pretty dysfunctional family. Really dysfunctional. You've got a situation where Jacob is a mummy's boy. He's soft. He likes to stay at home. He likes to cook. Yeah? Whereas Esau's a hunting and a fishing man. You know? Dad likes him. So you've got these two characters, and they're vying with each other. Jacob, by deception, steals his brother's birthright. Read that in Genesis 27, with a little help from his mother. So this is a family at war, but God still has his way. So anyway, Jacob, because obviously he stole his brother's birthright, his brother now is comforting himself by thinking about, I'm going to kill him. So his mother says to him, look, my son, you better go away. So he disappears. And he, he's in the land of Canaan, and we read that he has a dream. In Genesis 28, 10, 15. He lies down to sleep, and it says here, Jacob left Bathsheba, Bathsheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Man, I'll tell you, if you're going to sleep on a stone, man, you must be dog tired. Yeah? <laughs> he had a dream in which he saw a, sto- a stairway res- re- resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. I'm stopping there because I'm thinking, I'm sure there's a song called sto- Stairway to Heaven. I wonder if it was inspired by this. I don't know. Never mind. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised for you. Oh, that's a great one. Because you see, Jacob was a a deceiver. He was a trickster. If you read about how he got his two wives, read it there. But irrespective of the fact that his character was out of whack, God had committed himself to giving, making that that, that covenant come to pass for him. So... God's plan to have a chosen people, his plan is to have a chosen people to whom his name and his ways may be made known and reminds Jacob of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac. And what you'll find you see, in your life is that when God makes a promise to you, he will remind you of it. He'll particularly remind you in times when you feel discouraged. 
As you know, as you, if you read in the book, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, and the most distinguished of them is Joseph, who becomes a prince in Egypt. You look at that, you can look at Genesis 37, 39 to 50. Read the story. I mean, I love Genesis. I, I, when I, I like, if you want to go to bed with a good book, man, read Genesis. Some stories in there. Okay, well, when Jacob is now, well, Joseph, obviously, God uses him to keep God's chosen people alive. And Jacob now, thinking that his son was dead, and you need to read the story or listen to, I think Rick did a preach there on Joseph. It was one, a great preach. And if you want to hear about Joseph, listen to that. I enjoyed that. I'm still trying to work out what this funky mother business is about, but that's another issue. <laughs> However, Jacob travels down to Egypt as he hears that Joseph is still alive because he thought he was dead. And there are 70 people. And they settle there. And the book of Genesis ends on a note of impending bondage with the death of Joseph. Because Joseph says, look, man, God is going to visit you. And when he does, he take my bones with you and back to the land. And he says that prophetically because Joseph was 110 when he died. But he spoke prophetically about what was going to happen. Anyway. What happens now, of course, is Genesis comes to a close. Then we come to the next section, the great covenant promises. We're into the book of Exodus. Summary. Exodus is a record of Israel's birth as a nation within the protective womb of Egypt. The Jewish family of 70 rapidly multiplies. At the right time, accompanied with severe birth pains, an infant nation numbering two to three million people, is brought into the world where it is divinely protected, fed, and nurtured. The book of Exodus is, is in two parts. The, the redemption from Egypt and the revelation from God. And if you want to look at it more closely, by the way, most of this information has come to me from the New Open Bible. I, I have one of these, the New Open Bible. What I like about the Bible is that at the beginning, it gives you a, an outline of the book and the key issues. And if you really want to get to, that's how I got to know my Bible. What I actually did was that when I had my devotional and I'd read through the books and I usually have three markers in my Bible. I have one in the old, one in Proverbs and one in the new. And when I come to a book, I read the outline, highlight the key points and then read through. And that gives you an understanding of what's going on. It gives you a chronological breakdown, a theological breakdown, a thematic breakdown of what's going on in the book. But it doesn't take long. It's only about a couple of pages. And that will help you too. And that's where I've got most of the information from. So, during, so what will happen is now we're in Egypt. They've grown to two to three million people. They are slaves. And I have to laugh. If you read it, it says that the Egyptians decided that they would take advantage of them and, you know, gave them more bondage and had to work harder and all that stuff. Then they said, okay. And what it says is that the harder they worked, the more they multiplied. And if you think about that, you know, if you're a slave and you're getting beat every day, what's the only thing you've got left to do? <laughs> you go home at night, man. <laughs> it's all you got. Because every day they're beating you. So you've you got to snuggle up. So, <laughs> so they went to two to three. And of course, the Egyptians are thinking, well, this is not good. Okay, infanticide. We will kill their sons. Of course, the midwives think, no, we're not going to do this. We fear God. So we get to this period now, 
that the children of Israel are just groaning. They are suffering. And it re- we read here in Exodus 2.23, During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their, and their, cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You know, God is always aware of his covenant promise. And in spite of the oppression, the Israelites were experiencing, experiencing God had a plan. And let me just say this. You know, whatever God has promised concerning our lives, we must not give up because circumstances are difficult. You know, each one of us, God has spoken things into our lives and they have not yet come to pass. And circumstances may be mitigating against it. But hang on in there. Because God is just watching for the right moment. He rules in the affairs of men. He rules in your affairs. He rules in my affairs. And whatever people are saying, whatever circumstances you're in, you need to understand that God is in control. Key character in the book of Exodus is, of course, Moses, this wonderful man of God. King of, Egypt, of the Egyptian, the king of Egypt seeks to introduce, as I said, infanticide. However, God has a plan. Moses is born in this situation where they're saying, basically, if it's a son, kill it. Kill him. Or, yeah. But, of course, God is doing other things. And of course, a Levite woman, she has a child, and he's a beautiful child, and they make a wicker basket. And because they couldn't hide him anymore, they put him into the wicker basket and put him into the Nile. He's set among the reeds. So we read in Exodus 2, 5, 10, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Because the sister was watching this. That's in the following verse. Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. You know what? The whole purpose of God that day rested on a tear. The whole purpose of God rested on a tear. That baby cried just at the right time for an Egyptian princess to have pity. Moses, as you know, grows up as an Egyptian and sees the plight of his people. He seeks to deliver them by killing an Egyptian. Read that in Exodus 2, 11, 15. He becomes a fugitive why? Because when they hear that he's killed, the, uh, the murdered this Egyptian, Pharaoh wants to get him. 
but he settles in the land of Midian where he becomes a shepherd. After 40 years, because he was 40 when he killed that person, he had another 40 years in, as it were, Midian, the desert, God comes to him in a burning bush and calls him to, to the leadership of God's people. Now, read this, because you see, get down there and read it, because you, you remember, Moses was mighty, it says, in word and deed. You can read that in Hebrews. But when God comes to him and says, look, I want you to lead my people home out of, the, out of, out of Egypt, he says, I can't do this. And he has an argument with God, chapters 2 and 3. He says, Lord, I, I am not eloquent, liar. But what happened was that he was so broken that he didn't feel he could do it. Read that story. You know, when God comes to Moses, of course, he's dried up. When he comes in a bush, he's saying something to Moses. He says, that's what you are. You're just dried up. But God uses those 40 years in the desert, desert to get Egypt out of Moses. He was a broken man. However, God uses the broken and the weak to shame the wise and the mighty. You see, God had to bring him to that place where he realizes it's not going to be my might, my power, my education, my training that's going to get you out. That you're going to use to lead my people out. It's going to be me in you, in your weakness, in your brokenness. God commissions Moses at the burning bush to be Israel's advocate to stand before Pharaoh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart through a series of object lessons, the ten plagues. The plagues increase in their severity until the tenth brings about the death of the firstborn of every household of Egypt. One of the key things you read in the book is about the Passover in Exodus 12, 1 to 16. And I encourage you to go and read about it. Israel escapes from the plague by the means of the Passover. What happens is on that night before the angel of death comes, God says, look, I want you to get a lamb, I want you to, to eat, you know, cook the thing and eat it with bitter herbs. Now, I always think of you know, mango, no, I'm always thinking of uh, pickle, that's not bitter, I'm thinking of lime pickle and mixed pickle, you know? It's bitter herbs, right? And he says, take the blood once you've killed the animal and put it on the doorposts and on the lintels. And the angel of death will come over, will fly over you and bypass your house. There's a, and in it, it's telling us a story about the fact that there has to be a price paid. It's also about protection. Because when they see the blood, he will pass over. And you know what? For those of you who know Jesus, because his blood was shed for you, your sins have been removed. They've been passed over. So it's one of those significant passages. They leave Egypt. On leaving Egypt, God guides them by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. Now, you, if you've ever watched Moses, Cecil B. DeMille, yeah, great. You know, that's really good. And the cartoon version, you know, um, Moses, Prince of Egypt. You get the, you know, you can see the pictures in your mind. And saves them from the Egyptians army through a miraculous crossing. And I love this passage, and I wanted to stop here, but I can't stop here. It's just that when they're leaving Egypt, it says they plundered the Egyptians. They asked for gold and silver, and they got it. And they were stepping, you know, duh, 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 we're out, we're out, you know. And then the Egyptians changed their mind and think, what have we done? 
Right, so they start to go after them. And I always see this as if I was doing a you know, movie picture, it would be like, cut to the Egyptians, cut to, to the Hebrews. They don't see what's coming, yeah? Because the cloud's between them. And then in chapter 14, all of a sudden, they realize the Egyptians are coming. And then they start to say to Moses, why have you brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness? Would it have been better for us to eat the leeks and the cabbages in Egypt? Why have you brought us out of this place? And I'm sure there's some Jamaicans in there because that's what they would have been saying to the pastor. <laughs> you know, why you bring us out here that we can die in the wilderness? Why did you just leave us there, man, to eat the leeks and the cabbages? You know, that's how I, I could hear it, you know. And then, he's, then Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of God. And, you know, he puts out fantastic stuff. Read it for yourself. You can get it there for yourself, yeah? But here's the important thing I want to get here. Who's running things? Who's running things? You see, when you read the story, what you've got to understand is that God tells Moses what's going to happen before it happens. So God's running things. He's in control. God is sovereign. It's not like the Egyptians are doing things and God's thinking, hmm, what move should I do next? You know, oh, pawn to King Four. No, he's, he's in control. He's in control, he's sovereign, he's running things. And that's one of the things you need to get when you read the book of Exodus, that God is in control. All the gods, small g's, that are coming up against the God, he is showing that there's only one God, there's only one Yahweh. All the other gods are no gods. That's the purpose. That's the proof. He says, I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to teach Pharaoh a lesson. I'm going to let him know there's only one God in heaven. You know what? I'm going to give him a spanking. Now you got the message. And he does it 10 times. And then finally he just takes him out. God's in control. Don't you think that the economic, political situations that we're facing are being controlled by the G8? No, God's in control. He's not up there sitting there biting his nails wondering what Mr. Obama is going to do, good man that he is, or Mr. Brown, or whoever we get, and pray, because we need to get the right people. But the thing is this, you need to understand that God sits enthroned above the cherubim. He says, ask of me and I'll give the kings, you know, ask of me and I'll give the kings of the, of the earth for inheritance. In other words, God is ruling, God is in control. He is not sitting there wondering what's going to happen. He runs things. So we come to the next section now, from Exodus 19 to 40. The revelation from God. Having experienced his deliverance, guidance, and protection, they need to be taught what God expects of them. This is a two to three million slave nation. They're, they're out, they're free, but now they need to know how to live. This is where the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments are, are given. And interesting, and in the book, it moves from narration, story, to legislation. Where God says, this is the way that you live. These are the boundaries that you should have. Moses receives God's moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, as well as the pattern for the, uh, for the tabernacle. Now, a little blip happens as God has to judge them because they kind of get into calf worship and do some things that they ought not to have done. Moses is up the mountain, they think he's gone, so they said, this is the calf, worship it. And they get into calf worship and they start to be immoral, etc. And God wants to deal with them, but Moses intercedes and placates God's hand. Which brings us now to the next, last section. The call to worship, serve, love and obey him. And we come now into the book of Leviticus. 
little summary of Leviticus. Leviticus is God's handbook for the newly redeemed people. Showing them how to worship, serve, and obey a holy God. You see, you've got them out. You've got to put some boundaries in. Now you've got to teach them how to live, how to serve, how to obey. Fellowship with God is through sacrifice and obedience. This demonstrates the awesome holiness of, of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord God, is holy. He sets the standard. Leviticus focuses on the worship and walk of the nation of Israel. In Exodus, Israel is redeemed and established as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus focuses on the worship and walk of the nation of Israel. One of the key themes is the, the Day of Atonement. This is a concept where they, once a year, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and they would have a scapegoat and all the sins of the nations, as it were, of the, of the nation would be put onto that scapegoat and they would send it out into the wilderness. And it's a picture and a simile for us to understand that, that for, because there is sin, it has to be paid for. And Jesus was the scapegoat for us. He took our sin. He became the sin center of the world for us. He's our scapegoat. He cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you and me at Calvary. So it's a powerful picture and simile. We now move into Numbers. Numbers is the book of wonderings. It takes its name from two numberings that took place at Mount Sinai, that's at the beginning of the book, in the plains of Moab, and you can find out about that. And most of the book, however, describes Israel's experience as they wander in the wilderness. Now, this is an amazing book, you know, because you see that much of the behavior of the people is groaning and moaning and, and grumblings and rebellions, etc. It says here, the lesson of Numbers is clear. While the wilderness may be a place to travel through, one does not have to live there. For, for, an, for, for Israel, an 11-day journey, as you can read there, becomes a 40-year agony. Some of the key themes. Rebellion and unbelief brings about disinheritance and hinders God's blessing. See, what happens now is that Israel and Moses is leading them with Aaron. But every now and then, a group of people says, you're not our leaders. We can do it ourselves. Korah rises up, and he decides that you're not the man. We're the man. So God says, okay, Moses, humble man, he says, okay, let's let God decide on this. He says to Korah, he said, look, if you die a natural death, then God has not spoken up, spoken by me. However, if the ground opens up and you guys fall in and you go down into Sheol, Life, then we know God has taken that this is that this that I am who I am, I am leading you because God has told me to. And if you read it, as Moses, as the words come out of his mouth, the ground opens up and Korah and all his household fall straight down into shell and the whole thing covers up. Scary. But the funny thing, even after that, they were still rebellious. Anyway, God's purpose is to bring them in to the promised land and they get to Kadesh. And why call it the Kadesh crisis? This is Numbers 13, 14. 
And what happens is that they send 10 spies out into the land to check it out. Now, did God say that they should check it out? He said the land is good. Wasn't that good enough? But no, they went out and checked it out. And they brought an evil report back except for two people, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua said, it's a good land, man. God is with us. They will be bread for us and meat. We don't have to be afraid. God's on our side, man. What's wrong with you guys? And they were saying, no, our little ones will be prayed to them. We, they were like giants in our eyes and we were like grasshoppers. Yeah? And they discouraged the people. And like, you know, Moses is like, gets mad. God gets mad. And God says, that's it. I'm going to get rid of all of them. Then Moses once again says, look, but Lord, if you kill them in the wilderness, what will people say? That the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt couldn't get them into the promised land? God thinks about this. Hmm, you're right. I tell you what, for each day that they went up there for 40 years, they would die in the wilderness. This generation is not going in. The next one is. So unbelief meant that they were disinherited and God's blessing was him. You see, what you've got to get here is that God, it's not like God didn't want them to go in. Don't you think God wants to bless you? Don't you think that he wants to prosper you? Don't you think he wants to provide for you? You think, what's wrong with these people? But you know, we can be like that too. You know, the Lord says to us to do something, but we don't want to do it. Now, it's not like God wants you to, is saying it to you so that he might bring difficulty into your life. He's doing it so that he might bring blessing into your life. But you read it, it's sad. After 40 years, after getting them to the Kadesh, they don't go in. Moses doesn't even get in because he, he gets upset with them because they want water and they're moaning again. And God says, speak to the rock. And Moses like strikes her up, says, drink you rebels. And God's, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how I feel about these people. Moses says, I do. He says, well, you're not going in. And that was a difficult thing for Moses. And look, look, let not many of you become leaders because aren't you a strip to judgment? Because he was a tremendous man because he kept his mouth tight about it. Only on one occasion did he ask God if he could go in and God says, don't speak to me anymore about this matter. He's a very humble man. And he just sucked it up and prepared Joshua to take over. One of the most important verses in Numbers is... Numbers 14, 21. In the midst of the disappointment of God, of, of God getting his people to the Kadesh and them not going in, he says this. He says, look, this generation may not go in. But let me tell you, one day, as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with my glory. One day, there will be a generation of people, a community of people, who will demonstrate my glory, that's my attributes, my love, my compassion and mercy, and they will go in and they will demonstrate to the earth what I'm really like. As truly as I live. In the midst of that disappointment, God just says, look, this is what it's about. It's about my glory. And one day there's going to be a generation that's going, that's going to demonstrate to the earth what I'm really like. As truly as I live. So we come to Deuteronomy. This is Moses' upper desert discourse. It's his swan song. It consists of a series of three farewell messages 
of Israel's 120-year-old leader. And it says this, I had not waxed dim, neither his natural energy abated. He didn't need glasses. It's addressed to the new generation destined to possess the promised land. And you know, it must have been difficult for Moses, you know, because as he stood at the lectern and he looked out, he could remember the parents of these kids, young people. He can remember the mums and dads. There must have been great pathos and great emotion in his heart as he saw this new generation come up and remembered the rebellion of their parents. And he was looking to pass the torch on and he wanted that torch to burn bright. Anyway, those who have survived the 40 years of uh, he addresses the new generation destined to, pro, to possess the promised land, those who have survived the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. He gives legal detail for the layman, not the priest. And you know, friends, you need to understand, two to three million people, they need civil laws. They need moral laws. They need statutes and legislation so they can live properly. He reminds the new generation of the importance of obedience if they are to learn from the sad experience of their parents. So what are the three messages? Quickly. Message one, obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment. Two, the three, three categories of the law, testimonies, statutes, and ordinance, so that these three million people may not descend into confusion, but there may be order amongst God's people. And message three is what I call prophetic. It predicts what will happen to Israel, blessing or cursing, in the near future and distant future, dispersion amongst the nations if they don't obey God. And if you find out the history of the children of Israel, they didn't obey God, and 10 tribes, 722 BC, were dispersed, they were taken over by the Assyrians, and then a little later, 586 BC, the southern tribe were taken into captivity in Babylon. So our conclusion. You know, God has a plan for his people. He intervenes in the affairs of men to ensure the plan. And here's the plan. And things, I'm going to say something here, and it may sound strange, but God is quite, it sounds, I'll say it, but it sounds, and I'm not being irreverent, but it sounds like this. God is quite selfish in the sense that the whole purpose of him bringing, choosing Abraham and having a nation is for one purpose and one purpose alone, to make his name known. That's the purpose. He wants people to see what he's really like. And it's difficult for him to come in all his glory. So through a community, he wants to make his name known. And the goal was to achieve it through his chosen people. Point two. He provides for us boundaries to live within, which help us to fulfill his mission and enable us to reach our full potential. Here's the point. You see, you think somehow that the Ten Commandments and all the rest of it, you know, is God restricting us. No, God knows how you operate. Think of yourself as a, a highly tuned car. You have to have the right oil. 
you have to have the right servicing for you for that car to operate at its maximum potential and for you to fulfill your potential God puts boundaries into your life he puts challenges in there so ultimately you can fulfill the purpose of which God ultimately called you three he calls us then to worship him love serve and obey him to fulfill our part of the covenant it's also that his name can be made known We've covered it. And what I'm encouraging you to do is to see this big story. That God doesn't just put commandments in there for, to make our life difficult. He wants you to operate your full potential. That as you begin to understand that God has a plan for your life and he intervenes into it, you can trust him. And our reasonable service of worship is that we Give our lives as a living sacrifice to him, which is holy and acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. Shall we stand? I hope you found that helpful. I hope that will get you into God's word. But he's chosen you for a purpose. He's put boundaries into your life and he's made promises to you that he will keep. Could a worship band come up? Where are you guys? And he does all of that so that ultimately where you live, what you do, how you behave will be a demonstration to the world out there what God is like.